Okay, well, I'm home on a Saturday night, which is not a shocker. Um, but I'm listening to a podcast with uh, Sam Harris and Eric Weinstein, Weinstein. And it's two and a half hours long, and I was thinking as I was going up and doing my laundry, and then I started thinking about philosophy, and then I started talking to myself as I typically do, and then I decided, well, I, I'll go ahead and record this. So I'll just talk to myself and actually capture it, which is arguably the better move on the, on the big chessboard that we call life. Um, so actually this was prompted because I, I saw there's this great lectures or great ideas series or some, something like this on, on, uh, Amazon prime. And it's basically, I mean, I'm shocked in 2020 that this actually is a popular thing. And I guess I don't know that it's popular. I just know that it's available and I saw a big ad for it. They might've like the, the big, you know, ad revenue model of of our techno social world they might have actually figured out from my viewings um i've had amazon prime for multiple years and they probably have really zeroed in on what this guy likes and so i i probably have a you know i like i i'm i'm waiting to see something on you know uh Slavic or Russian women in their mid twenties, um, with college degrees and who just (laughs) love older intellectuals. Not that I'm an intellectual, but certainly I qualify as older. Uh, so I had this huge ad for this thing of, uh, this series, this course, this entire website that's basically dedicated to like professors that give lectures and they're just they're filmed and some of them go back to the late nineties. And I was listening to one today and the guy was just very pedigreed. He was Harvard this. And uh, I think he was like, he went to like Yale or Harvard. And then another of his degrees was from Princeton or something. And he was like the best you can do in America without actually crossing the Atlantic ocean and going to Cambridge and Oxford. And, and and maybe even arguably Harvard and Princeton are on a par or some would argue even better for intellectual historians. So he was an intellectual historian and he was giving a lecture about intellectual history and why it matters. And I and it's got like it's like not great quality filming because it's from 1998 and he's giving a lecture in like a tweed suit, like a professor <laughs> and to to an obviously like, you know, selected group of like five or six, you know, you know, students who are all actually older people and who are sitting there just perfectly attentive. And while he gives this lecture about why intellectual history matters and, and I just thought he was really, actually, it was like a really, really good lecture. And one of the things he got into, and I should, I should, I should, but maybe won't, make some attempt to explain why I thought his exposition of the value and importance of intellectual history. Intellectual history is the history of how our ideas come about in different eras and time periods and, and why they matter and what consequences. So we have 
military histories and we have histories of, you know, biological histories. And so, you know, we were Homo erectus and now we're Homo sapiens and so on. And then we have social histories and economic histories where we used to have feudalism. Okay, now we don't have feudalism and now we have capitalism and, and, um, and we have, you know, sexual histories where, well, we were Victorian and we thought this and then we were Edwardian and then we had a sexual res- revolution and, and, and now we're in this sort of modern era, you know, post whatever. And, and, but an intellectual history isn't really any of that and it's actually more important. And one of the things he mentioned, which I thought, wow, that is a great, clear thought. That is a really, really good way to make a point. Um, he said that what will actually change the one thing that you can be sure of, um, right? That if it changes, everything else in the culture, in the society will eventually change. So it will be uh, the, the one, the, the sort of the way of grabbing the one thing, at it, the, grabbing the thing at, at its root is if you're, if the ideas that are taken to be true, what's taken to be generally true by that society in some historical period change or undergo some transformation or otherwise, you know, new ideas are acquired because of tech, technology, science, whatever happens. Um, if, if, if the set of ideas that sort of form the foundation upon which we have all these other, uh, other changes, right? Um, then you have, you have basically a new society. And so he made the point, that was the point he was making. And actually the way he argued the point was he said, look, if you went back a few hundred years ago, you could, without too much effort within a week or so, you could figure out, okay, who's, who's my boss? How does it work to get paid? Who do I have to talk to? Who do I have to respect? Uh, who you know? Where are the police? And what do I not have to do to get thrown into shackles? Or you know, and and, and if I want to go to a, a, a you know a, a party or a, a you know go to a dinner or something, how what should I do and how should I behave? All that stuff could be figured out within a week of immersion in the culture. And it wouldn't particularly, it might seem strange to you at first, but it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't be that difficult for you to adjust and to make your way. But if the ideas were fundamentally different about what they took to be true, and then the ideas that you bring, brought with you on your kind of time trip back there, right? Those, that would be a... Um, a case where you really had a difficult time understanding exactly what, like there would be a fundamental, the the difference felt would actually be in the way that this other culture in some other historical time period views what's true and what's false. If that's, if that's different enough to what you view as true and false, you will, you will not only have not be able to really adjust you will be just struck by your being out of place endlessly and for as long as you were there, right? And so the, the, what people take generally take to be true, whether it's from church authority or scientific figures or, you know, the aristocracy or the, what the newspapers said last Sunday, like, but, but 
what undergirds all that and what people take to be real is really the, the stuff that you need to understand. Um, and so he made that point a lot better than I just made it, but that actually kept me watching for a while and not, you know, going off and doing something else. And then he, what he did was, uh, he gave a, a perfectly summary, crisp, and I think complete, uh, account of what, how intellectual history captures what we mean by the ideas, the set of ideas, what we often think of as philosophy. And so, you know, if you're thinking about philosophy, people get bored quickly and it seems confusing. And it seems like a lot of people arguing about stuff that science has solved. And it seems like a lot of discussions that are make you feel stupid and you shouldn't feel stupid because what the heck is the point of this anyway? And, you know, I've heard all of it basically, and I don't do a lot of philosophy anymore, but I have studied it. And his synopsis of philosophy, I thought was just perfect. Um, and so he said, basically, I don't remember his name now, but I need to get it because I thought I, I I really think he's worth he's worth what you, you maybe drudging up his stuff on YouTube also if he's got stuff up there. But um, philosophy has three components to it, and these are the three components that also are the targets for the intellectual historian who kind of goes tries to go back into in in time into a different period and doesn't want to judge what people thought at that time, but wants to find out as, as best they can, as to the extent possible, what was thought and why, what were the ideas that were believed true. And so the first part of that, what of the job of the intellectual historian is a part of philosophy called metaphysics. If you want to be Aristotelian about it or, Ontology, this, it's the theory of what is, what exists. And this is where a lot of people like roll their eyes and say like, why do I, like, I know what exists. Like I know what's out there. And I think there's like, there's this, this feeling that ontology is the least, is the most abstruse and least practically useful or consequential or important part of thinking that you could possibly engage in. And it's, it's kind of not true actually. And so like the idea, so here's the problem. Like if trying to figure out what is, is the precondition, like what really exists, like what's there, what's in the world, what's it, what's, what's true. Like do, uh, you know, it, are there triangles? Are there numbers? Like when we say the number three, for instance, do what are do what we mean is what we mean by the number three? I made a mark with graphite on this piece of paper, and it's a symbol, and we're playing this game, and the game is that we're going to call that the number three. And if I make this other mark on the paper, and it, and it's in the mark of what we recognize as the as four, then we're going to call that 
the number four. And we're going to pretend we're going to do this little dance with our ontology, which with, with our theory of what exists. We're going to say that there really are sort of abstractions. There are abstract things like threes and fours, but we all know there can't be because you can't see them and you can't touch them. What you can touch is the piece of paper and the graphite from the pencil. You can see with your own eyes and you can touch the touch the paper and see and hold it up in front of you and say, this is what I mean by three. When I make the sound with my vocal cords, three, this is what I mean. So that's the stuff that's got to be real. And to some people that seems like very obvious. Like, why would you believe that there's some three running around out there? Like there's a three, like there's no three, there's just these symbols. And, um, What's interesting, though, is that some really, really smart people, including some uh, mathematical physicists, one guy in particular uh, wrote several books about it from Oxford. I mean, a real mathematical physicist. I mean, somebody that presumably knows more than me and you about this stuff, more than almost anybody in the world, actually, about this stuff is... Uh, believes that numbers actually are, are real. And in fact, what happens when you make a mark on a piece of paper that looks like the number three is you're making an imperfect copy of something that actually is foundationally more real. In other words, you're, you're trying to get at something that is, is much more real than any mark on any piece of paper. It's in some sense, numbers have been around forever. Like numbers exist as concepts and just because we can't see them directly with our animal senses doesn't mean at all that they don't exist. In fact, our animal senses create all kinds of illusions and distortions and fictions. It's the number three, the abstract number three that actually exists vastly more with more certainty than anything you could scribble on a piece of paper with a pencil, right? So some really smart people actually think, no, that's completely backwards. But the usual typical common sense way of thinking that, of that is, is like the only stuff that exists is the stuff I can see and touch and feel. And if you think about that, for more than 10 seconds, for 20 seconds, for 30 seconds, you, that can't actually be true. It's a, it's a kind of, uh, I mean, it's un understandable, but it's ultimately a superficial and uh, even kind of an, a lazy answer to the question of, the un of what exists or what is really real or what is what your ontology is, your theory of what is or what exists. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, uh, if you think that you love somebody, what does love exist? It's like, no, that's an abstraction. That's a concept. What really exists is this emotion that I have. Okay, well, that emotion that you have is a feeling. That's what you mean by love. Love is a, is a feeling, right? Well, what's a feeling really? I mean, what do you mean? Is love actually your pulse? You're the blood, you know, your heart is slightly elevated to heart rate, your disposition to act in a certain way when there's another, you know, human being in your presence and so on. And it actually gets kind of complicated and you end up sort of arguing about stuff that you thought was really certain. And it seems like just like the number three, it seems like there's a lot of stuff that we talk about that we actually can't point to and say, that's what I mean by the number three, right? That's what I mean by love, right? Um, 
And so for problem A, what we think we know is real and unreal, oftentimes we're a lot more confused about that, just sort of lurking ju- just under the surface of that is a, is, a, is a bunch of very shallow answers, very quick answers, and very sort of um, partial answers to that question. So, and the point B is, is that if we have different theories of what exists, this is why it matters, actually. This is why uh, you know, studying ontology uh, actually matters. If we have different ideas about what's real, we're going to run into each other at some point in a conversation. If we're, having, if we're trying to have a discussion and we disagree on some foundational elements in our ontology, in our theory of what is, we're going to run into difficulties. And, and here's a great example. I mean, here's a silly example. I don't want to give a great example yet. I'll give you one. But first, I'll give you a silly one, which is in its own way, I think, effective. If I say, uh, you know, if I think that unicorns exist, actually, and I want to move on to talking about when the proper care and feeding of unicorns and whether you can, are they visible under 100 yards? Do you typically feed them in the morning or at night? Do you find that you can smell them? Because I've noticed when they're in my backyard and there's more than a couple of them, uh, you know, and they were there when I get up in the morning, I t- typically have, it's a, it's a, sl- it's a slightly pasture-ish manure smell, but it's not quite that of farms and livestock. And I always know that's evidence of a unicorn and so on. Like if you start having a discussion with someone who believes that unicorns are in their ontology, that they actually exist and you don't, you can't move on to talking about all this other stuff. The conversation is going to screech to a halt, Right. So like, hey, uh, you know, listen, Larry, do you feed your unicorn at night or in the morning? Right. Well, you know, Larry, if he's, you know, a normal social (laughs) person, like, right, will probably not find that a particularly perspicuous question. Because he doesn't think that the thing you're talking about exists in the first place. So why, you know, the rest of it. So it's going to, so it brings a lot. So if your ontology is mismatched, the things you're going to talk about, uh, you're going to run into problems trying to communicate. That's one thing. And I think this comes up most clearly when people try to talk religion, right? So if I don't think there's a God. So I just think that when you say the word God, you're saying something like unicorn. You're, you have in mind something, but it doesn't refer to anything. There's nothing out there. There's nothing that is actually pointing to. And I might actually use the same argument that you use about the number three for the concept of God. Like, what do you mean there's a number three that exists, but it's kind of super sensual in the sense that I can't. You can't actually like you, the only way I can show you the number three is is to, you know, use my pencil and a piece of paper and write a symbol and then just keep yelling and telling you that's three. That's three. That's what I mean by three. All right. And some people think that God is exactly like that or even even more like even 
more directly fictitious in the sense that like, no matter what I'm saying about God, I'm ultimately saying there's a, it's an empty concept. There's nothing there that I'm talking about. So, you know, if I say, so if I'm a, if I'm a, you know, an, an atheist or someone that doesn't believe in God and you say, look, you know, the, like in the Torah, in the Bible, the, the locusts came and they wiped everything out and it was God's wrath. It was Yahweh. The scientists would say like, no, actually what you're describing is you have this like in rapid increase in the population of a particular insect, locustus amazes. I don't know what a Latin word for a locust is, but you know, and in fact, at that particular, you know, time space coordinate, you know, location, there was a rapid temperature increase along with a wind blowing from the South by Southwest. And you had ideal conditions for that particular population having a very, very rapid exponential increase in the numbers of that population in a constricted area at the time that the crop was on the calendar year nearing its peak. So you had a very, very quick degradation of the quality of the fields, thereby yielding a general panic and starvation in the, in the human population that experienced the you know, insectoid locust, right? So, okay, that's all true. But the person who believes in God is going to say, yeah, like that stuff happened and here's why. Because Yahweh was, was, was angry, was reacting to something that the just, you know, the, the, that the Jewish tribe had done or failed to do. And that's why there was this, you know, swarm of locusts plague that's why this plague happened that's why there was a flood that's why these things happened because god did it so if somebody says look there is no god then you thereby have no explanation you're you're pointing to something and saying this is this is look at the consequences of of uh our relationship with some object, but there's nothing there. There's no object. It's fictitious. So the atheist and the theist or the person who believes in God and the person who doesn't are going to come into head to head conflict, right? 180 degree collision in their ability to talk about things. They won't agree on the next important part of philosophy, which is to talk about causes. So you want to have a, th you have ontology, which is the theory of what is, and you have causes, which is how things come about. So once you agree on the stuff, what is, you can talk about how that stuff changes over time. And there you, you have some fundamental concepts that really have to be hammered out. And in every culture, in every society, if you have differences in, in understanding of causation, in other words, what causes what, you're going to have radically different understandings of religion, science, so everything will change if you have different understanding of causation. So causation is just, you know, A causes B means A happened first and it brought about that B happened, right? So if I turn the key, then the motor starts, all other things being equal and so on. And so causation is just, we need causation to describe the stuff, the ontology, and how it changes as a function of time, how it things bump into each other or don't, and how things as time 
as, as, as time moves forward, how things change. We don't think everything is random so that we're living in a, just a swirling mass of chaotic particles that have no order and nothing governs one moment, how things are organized one moment to the next, right? The cloud isn't going to turn into a penguin, isn't going to turn into, you know, a teapot, isn't going to turn into a caterpillar while you're staring at it because it's a cloud and it's made up of molecules and, and, and water and so on. And so it's got the, what causes the cloud to move will be something relevant to moving clouds like the wind, right? So, so knowing sort of why did this thing, why did this thing happen? We're often, we're asking about how things change, how, why do things change and how things change is a theory of causation. And causation gets complicated because in science, a lot of times what we have are statistical explanations where we don't actually think that, or we may or may not think that there is an ultimate cause to something, but it remains unknown. That's actually a perfect, although a little bit too quick segue into the third area. But um, so we may say that, look, we, we uh, think that if you, if you remove 30% of this particular, um, I don't know, um, you know, pro, uh, uh, moth or something, then you'll affect, you'll cause the, all other things being equal, the fish population or something in some area will grow by 10% per, per month or something like that. I don't, I don't know. Or, you know, I mean, just name anything in, in science where we, we know that there are causes at work, but what we observe are statistical regularities and, and changes statistically in, in things. Um, you know, like you have failure modes in equipment. You can say like there's some like 0.00% chance that you'll have a failure on a, on a, like a part in an aircraft or something, right? And, you know, that doesn't exclude the fact that the chance will be 100% that you have a failure if you, if you isolate the cause, if you have, if the cause occurs, right? So, um, like if, a, if the line, if an, if a hydraulic system failed and the backup system failed, it would cause, like it would cause with a hundred percent certainty, the, the, a loss of control of the aircraft in a crash, right? But we don't know, like, so we may or may not have incorporate into our description of the world, we may incorporate in how the world changes and under what conditions it changes, we may or may not incorporate causal information into that. A lot of times we give statistical or probabilistic information. And in some cases, we don't know the causes at all. Um, You know, in some cases in physics and so on, like we just observe the effects of something and there's just no way to get at a more, at least we think for now, a more fundamental description. So, but generally speaking, when you figure out what's out there, then you want to know how it's changing. And so if you think, you know, when you figure out that there's atoms and molecules, you want to know what happens when they combine and blow apart and so on. And when you figure out that there's trolleys and, and buses, then you want to know what happens when they clog up urban roads and you know they affect time to uh they they affect general traffic flow and so on like there's just everything we want to know about from 
from, you know, birds in the middle of northern Canada to, you know, tra- traffic systems in, in L.A. are going to involve what exists, like birds and traffic systems, and how does it change? So that's philosophy, actually. I mean, that's at the root of everything that we're doing, right? It, and we need answers to that. And so, what the and there's one there's one more which I touched on, and I'll just I'll bring it out now, and then I'll explain why I thought the lecture was so good by a historian, not a philosopher, but uh, nonetheless. Um, so the third thing is like, how do you know? So the this is the this is the ultimate. Uh, this is the interesting question, right? So. At some point, you're gonna, you need to figure out what, what is there to talk about and worry about. And then you need to figure out like, okay, and then once we figured out that those are the things, okay, how do, you, how do they cause other things? So if I think that they're, well, actually there's witches. It turns out that there's witches. Really? They're not like just, no, yeah, yeah, there's witches. Of course, everybody knows that there's witches, real witches. Okay, so how did that, what does that mean then? Like since there's witches, how many witches? I don't know. Well, there's several thousand left, right? Okay, so what then do they cause? Like how do they change stuff? Like you're asking, when you're asking, what are the powers of the witch? If you think witches exist, then you're going to, When you're asking about that, you're asking about causation. And then the question that's extremely relevant to witches and so many other things is like, how the hell do you know that though? How do you know that there are witches? Like by what process of investigation, of reasoning, of education, right? Of observation, like by what process do you, did you come to believe that there are witches, and if that process seems incredibly suspect, then we're going to go back and like question the ontology and question the causal story that's given, right? So, so that's called epistemology. It's a theory of knowing. Like, how do you know what you know? Um, and so somebody might, somebody can believe. In epistemology, gets incredibly interesting and complicated. Uh, to, to epistemologists, I guess, and, and a few other people, but it actually gets, it gets very confusing because people can believe things with just for terrible reasons, but they turn out to be true. Right. So, you know, somebody that somebody could have told you a story when you were three that, you know, that there were actually, you know, 20,000 nuclear weapons pointed from the Kremlin at the time, you know, to at the United States or something like that. And the guy was just telling stories about how there was going to be World War Three tomorrow. And he, it was just scaring a young child. And just everybody in the room knew that he was just an unreliable reporter of information. But you know, he actually could have told you the truth. It could have been actually the correct number of nuclear ICBMs pointed at New York. And so the fact that he was just incredibly unreliable and, you know, and poorly intentioned should make you question that the information is true. But in fact, the information can be true, but you don't in the epistemological sense, you don't have a good reason to believe it. You need some other way of believing it. You see, you have to go verify, right? And so that's epistemology. Like, how do you know? And the other, th- in the other respect, like we, people can do, you know, double blind 
scientific ex- experiments and go through elaborate links to ensure the accuracy and the truth and the veracity of a particular scientific claim or a, a, of a of a science of a hypothesis that they want to get and you know that they want to answer and it, everything could be the t you know cross the t's and dot the i's on every possible way of of coming to know this and we could think it's certain knowledge and then you know tomorrow it could turn out oh you didn't account for some unknown you know unforeseen variable and it turns out that that's all wrong and rubbish and and it, you know actually egg yolks are good for you right you know, it turns out a little bit of cholesterol is good for you, but we had really good reason to believe in the 1980s that they weren't. So it gets tricky. You can you can uh, you can ask questions about how do you know what you know, independent of what it is that you know or think you know, right? And independent of what really is out there, right? So. Um, so that's the three aspects of philosophy. Like, what is there? How does it change and what changes it? What are the laws of nature? What are the physical forces? What is, what's the story of how stuff changes, right? Why is my sunflower plant three inches smaller than my neighbor's? What, what's the story of change? What causes his or her plant to be larger than mine? Is it better sunlight? Does he have a green thumb? Is a green thumb a real thing, right? And then how do we know what we think we know? What's the, what's the idea? So when we talk about, for instance, the scientific method, we're talking about epistemology. It's like, look, we have a method for trying to weed out and whittle away all the bad ways that we might come to conclusions. And we want to make it more probable that the stuff we come to believe is in fact the stuff that's true. We want to make that as high probability as we can, knowing that we're fallible, knowing that we'll make mistakes. So those are the three aspects of philosophy. And I thought that was a fantastic summary or synopsis of philosophical thinking. And that's kind of, that is philosophy, actually. That's that's the field. And I thought it was, it was wonderfully put, uh, how he put that in the context of, uh, when you're an intellectual historian and you try to kind of p- put yourself into the shoes of a different time period and of a of a of a society or a culture, and you you put yourself into those shoes, and in an intellectual historian in particular wants to understand on their terms what they believed, and you know it was a. Uh, for a, it was something like a 20 minute lecture. So he inspired me to do a lot more than 20 minutes. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot there. Like I can use that information and I haven't seen his other lecture yet, but I will, but I can use that information to help other people understand when things get complicated, one great job, one great service, if you will, that you can perform for other people is to simplify things and so so people can kind of grab on have something to grab onto and say oh see i see what's going on there's a lot of there's a lot of details there's a lot of bells and whistles but at root this is what we're talking about and so um so yeah that's what i have to say